So this week we have the Parsha of Chayesara, <coughs> which begins with Chayesara, and I would like for us to spend the first uh, second of the Shir looking at the opening Pasuk and trying, as we, as we often try to do, to pay attention to its details and nuances and to do justice to, to what the Torah is trying to tell us. <coughs> so the Pasuk begins by Yuchai Sarah. The life of Sarah was Me'ashana Vesimshana Vesheva Shanim, 127 years, or 100 years, 20 years, 7 years. Shinei Chayesar, the years of the life of Sarah. And <coughs> if we try and read the Pasuk carefully, we note, of course, that the final three words of the Pasuk appear to be somewhat redundant, as if to say, You've told me that the life of Sarah was 127 years. I seem to have learned everything I can about the life of Sarah. The Pasuk then concludes by saying, the years of the life of Sarah. Surely that's something that is obvious to me from from the Pasuk itself. What then is added by these three extra words? And this question, well, Rashi himself comments, but (coughs) we'll begin with the Ramban. Because there is a famous comment of Chazal in the Midrash about the years of Sarah. Well known, Rashi quotes it, and that is that it actually equates the groups of years one to the other. So you have a hundred years, then twenty years, then seven years. And the point is, as Rashi says, bas kuf bas kaf lechet. A hundred was like twenty. At the age of a hundred, she was like when she was twenty, namely without sin. Rashi quotes the idea, the tradition <coughs> that heaven they punish only from the age of twenty. Although that's a big discussion, we seem to have at least uh, in our legal realm culpability from from earlier on, from from bar and bas mitzvah. But uh, be that as it may, there is a certain arena wherein uh, heaven only punishes from the age of 20, and therefore at 100, like 20, without sin. And then, bas kafka bas zayin, 20 like 7. Just like, uh, in what respect? Leofi, with regards to beauty. And that itself also attracts a discussion from among the Mephorshim. It's a well-known Rashi, but what are we saying? When she was 20 years old, she was as beautiful as she was when she was seven. That's not an intuitive compliment per se. Uh, A seven-year-old girl can look very nice and pretty, but presumably her beauty at the age of 20 is something uh, which doesn't gain in comparison to a seven-year-old. On the contrary, many seven-year-old girls would like to look like they're 20. Uh, very few uh, 20-year-old girls would like to look like they're seven. So, uh, and, and the Mephorshim discuss these and other matters. But for our purposes, the question that we need to ask is, What do Chazal see in this posuk that uh, inform them or indicate to them that this is the way to approach the phrases? that they are to be compared one to the other. Perhaps it's very simply, in a straight line, 127 years, like any sum of years. Where do we get these 
micro comparisons, 100 to 20 and 20 to 7. <clears throat> and Rashi seems to say that it's the appearance of the word shanim together with each unit or each group. In other words, me'ah shana, esrim shana, sheva shanim. <coughs> that word is stopping us, it's punctuating, and that is the reason uh, why the Torah didn't very simply say me'ah ve'esrim ve'sheva shanim, and which is the way to say 127, but gave us shanim, these, uh, again, punctuations, because it wants you to compare 100 years to 20 years, and 20 years to 7 years. So for Rashi, explicitly, it's the mentioning, the repeated mentioning of the word shana and shanim as it goes through her years. But the Ramban takes issue with this. Ramban says that's very difficult. Because if that is the reason why we start to compare the groups of years one to the other, then what will we do with other psukim where we also find the repetition of ex shanim, ex shanim, ex shanim? And indeed, there are two such examples in our very parsha. Towards the end, in Perik Kafhei Pasuk Zion, the Torah describes, presents the years of, Ar- of Avram. Perik Kafhei Pasuk Zion. The Pasuk Zion reads, Ve'ele yemei shenei chaye Avraham asher So what are Avram's years? Ma'as shana, 100 years. Ve'shivim shana, 70 years. Ve'chamesh shanim. So there too, we have all these years. Says the Ramban, if you look in the Midrash, you will find no comment there. But if every time we have the repetition of Shana and Shanim, it's meant to be, make these comparisons, there should have been some type of um, explanation as to what those comparisons are. But the Medrash doesn't comment. <coughs> Interestingly, Rashi does. But Rashi does not seem to have a source in the Medrash. Rashi says, one could say, Lishitoso, consistent with his opinion, yes, Me'as Shana, V'shivim Shana, V'chamesh Shanim. Ben Kuf Ben Ayin, when he was a hundred, he was like seventy, Uven Ayin Kiven Hey, and when he was like seventy, he was like five, below Chet, without sin. <coughs> so we see on the one hand that Rashi is, is actually making a similar comment, true to form, because you have the repetitions of Shana. Interestingly, it's worth noting that the comparisons this time round don't seem to be like the first time. Because with Sarah, each comparison is for something else. 100 is like 20 for one thing, sin. 20 is like 7 for something else, beauty. With Avram, it's, it's a chain. 100 is like 70, and then 70 is like 5. So in the end, it's all leading to this one comparison to the age of 5 um, for sin. So that's a slight uh, uh, nuance difference, but either way... Rashi does comment, but Ramban says, but he shouldn't have. And the Medrash doesn't comment. And this isn't, this isn't really grounds for comment. And the, and the final blow, as far as the Ramban is concerned, comes from a yet later Pasuk in our Parsha, which deals with the years of Yishmael. Perik Kafhei, still in that Perik, Pasuk Yud Zayin. And what does it say? Ve'ele shenei chaye Yishmael. These are the years of Ishmael. Ma'as shana, 100 years. Ve'shlashim shana, 30 years. Ve'sheva shanim. 
and seven years, says Ramban, what are you going to say about Yishmael? Nothing. There is nothing to say about Yishmael, and that's actually the best case scenario. And indeed, Rashi doesn't comment there. I mean, what, what, what will you say? There's nothing to say. But at this point, says Ramban, you see that even when the Posig breaks it down and repeats Shona and Shonim, it doesn't mean to compare them. And indeed, this is a significant question on Rashi. How will Rashi deal with the Yishma'el Pasuk? And Mefarshe Rashi are busy to explain Rashi's position there. But as far as the Ramban is concerned, he has demonstrated quite clearly that the comparison of the Medrash is not because of the repetition of Shana. So what is it due to? Where does it come from? Says the Ramban, the basis of Chazal's comparisons are the final three words of the Pasuk. Shenei Chayei Sarah. It's the Torah not only having given you the years, but then repeating and saying the years of Sarah. That seemingly redundant phrase is saying that all of these years were similar to each other. These milestones, these ages are, are comparable to each other. And that is why the Medrash says at 100 she's like 20, because it's Shnei Chayei Sarah. It's all good. It's all the same. When she's 20, she's like seven, because it's Shnei Chayei Sarah. So what we have seen on the one hand is a Machlokas between Ramban and Rashi, <coughs> and it doesn't get bigger than Ramban and Rashi, but we have seen Ramban's answer to the question, what do we learn from these three extra words, says Ramban, this is the basis of the comparisons of 100 to 20 and 20 to 7. A different approach from much, much later <coughs> comes from Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky in his Sefer Emes Yaakov. And he draws our attention to another comment of Rashi, which is again based in the Medrash. And that is that we know, we have a tradition, that after the Akedah, so Avram is together with Yitzhak in the Akedah, and they've passed the Akedah test with flying colors, Sarah in the meanwhile is home, and she doesn't know. And that's very interesting. Avram never told her that he was going to do the Akedah. And part of the reason why is because that is part of the Nisayon. The, 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 the trial of the Akedah is to proceed and do this without Sarah's knowledge. Because if he would tell her, and Sadekas that she is, she will buoy him on and she will support him and she will encourage him and she will, 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 will give him chizuk. And half of the Nisayon has gone missing. Because when Sarah's on board, there's no turning back. So that's very interesting. So Sarah doesn't know. So how does she find out? She finds out because the Satan came <coughs> and, uh, and told her the news. And the way the Medrash uh, phrases it, and when she heard the news of the Akedah, her soul departed, she expired. And that was the, 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 the passing of Sarah. And of course, that's why it comes basically straight after the Akedah. This is a well-known Medrash. Rashi quotes part of it, but the Medrash is, is well known. And says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, it's very important to realize that the Satan didn't kill Sarah. In other words, the Satan never really does anything good, but there is a limit to what he's able to do. The job of the Satan is to, to mislead people, to tempt people. He can't kill people. If, if, if things don't work out his way, or uh, that's beyond his 
capability. So the notion that's, that Sarah died because the Sutton killed her with this news, that's not the point. The point is the time had come for Sarah to leave the world anyway. Capitalizing on that, <clears throat> the Sutton figures that if he can time that with her hearing the news of the Akeda, it will give the impression that she died because of the Akeda. And that, of course, will be a terrible situation. It's a Chilul Hashem, because from this great thing came the death of Sarah. It may even lead Avram to regret having done the Akeda, as, as we've discussed on previous occasions, which could actually erode, if not delete, the, the, the merit of the Akeda. So the Satan, it's all about appearances here. But he doesn't actually kill Sarah. He times her passing with hearing the news so that people will hear, yes, Sarah heard the news and then she died. And, and you know, look, look at Avram, look at what Avram did to her and, and, and so on and so forth. And where, does, where and how does the Torah indicate that Sarah did not die before her time? That, says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, is the import of the final three words, Shnei Chaye Sarah. It's not enough to say how long she lived, because we don't know how, long, how much longer she could have lived. The Pasuk thus concludes by saying, no, this was her years. This was her span of years, Shnei Chaye Sarah. And that needs to be emphasized, <coughs> so, and in a sense to undo that final uh, ploy of the Satan. What we do see, interestingly, is that the Satan is not only uh, tempting people to do sin, but he is already developing the art of presenting situations in a way which will lead to bad outcomes. He cannot change the facts, but he can present a narrative of those facts, which then leads to a damaging outcome. And of course, we have not heard the last of the Satan. Indeed, his Talmidim have gone one further. They are actually capable of uh, turning up with facts that do not actually uh, exist in order to further their purposes, uh, but they got that from the Rebbe, and that's the, the, the Satan himself. Proof for what I'm saying, says Rabbi Yaakov, that these were actually Sarah's years can be adduced from Rashi in Parshas Toldos. Because in the beginning of Perik Kafzayin, when Yaakov calls Esav, Pardon me, when Yitzchak calls Esav to bless him, in Perik Kafzayin, Pasuk Beis. So he calls Esav, and Esav says, Hineini, and Pasuk Kaf Beis, Vayomer, Hineinozakanti, I'm getting old, Lo Yadati, Yomosi. I don't know when I'm going to die, which is very interesting. Yitzchak at that time was 123 years old. He would yet live more, almost 60 years. But somehow, there's something about that time that made him anxious or, or, or worried, fearful. And Rashi explains <coughs> and quotes the Medrash, which says, if a per when a person comes within five years of when one of their parents has passed away, they should be fearful. And this indeed was Yitzhak's situation. His mother passed away when, he was, when she was 127. He is now 123, having entered into that zone... <coughs> That's why he's afraid, says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. But if Sarah died as a result of the intervention of the Satan, so 127 was not her allotted years, Yitzchak doesn't need to be fearful at the age of 123, as long as the Satan doesn't appear to him. 
We see from here that 127 were her years. As our Pasuk says, Shnei Chayei Sarah. And that is why Yitzchak is afraid already at the age of 123, in the event he would outlive both of the, both spans of, uh, the spans of, of both of his parents uh, to 180. But that is the proof from Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. So far, if we, if we take stock so that things um, should uh, uh, keep clear, for Ramban, the final words, Shnei Chayei Sarah, are to equate all the groups of years. For Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, they are to... <coughs> Uh, inform us in no uncertain terms that 127 were her years. And the final approach, which I would like to, to give to these three words, Shnei Chayei Sarah, before we move on, is very different. And it comes from the Sefer Haksava HaKabola, Rabbi Yaakov Tzvi Mecklenburg, uh, who we uh, like to quote. And indeed, one of, one could say, the specialties of the Sefer Haksava HaKabola is that he's always open to the, the latitude of options as to what any one word might mean in any situation. And here, as we will see, is a good example of that. And he begins by saying, human beings are unique in the sense that they bring together two planes of existence. They are not the only beings that exist, but they are the only beings that have these two planes of existence, by which we mean you have animals on the one hand which lead a physical existence. You have uh, angels on the other hand, on the other side of the, the, the spectrum, who, who lead a, a purely spiritual existence. And then you have man. And man has both. He's afar min ha'adama. He's a physical being, no question about it, <coughs> with physical needs and physical pursuits. But he also has a spiritual aspect to him. And these two together are the unique makeup of man. <clears throat> and what is his goal? His goal is to ensure that the two live together. That his physical existence and his spiritual existence live together. And what does it mean for them to live together? It's possible to get so bogged down or fixated on physical existence that the spiritual element gets eclipsed, if not disappears, completely, for all intents and purposes. And how does one preserve that duality? By making sure, says the Ksava Kabbalah, as the Rambam describes at length, that his physical activities are in line with his spiritual goals. That, that when he makes a living and when he's involved in his, his day-to-day activities, even things like eating and sleeping, that they, that they don't become goals for themselves, but they become always attuned under the rubric of the, his broader spiritual goals. If he can do that, he harmonizes them and keeps the two together. One of the personalities who was outstanding in this regard the Torah informs us, is Sarah. The way that Sarah lived, and that's what it means to be a tzaddik or to be a tzaddikus. <coughs> the way that Sarah lived, she was involved in the physical world. She, she went about and did, did what needs to be done. But it was always with the ideal of spiritual goals in mind. And thus, the Torah doesn't just tell us how many years she lived. Me'ashana, Esrim shana, Sheva shana. It concludes by saying 
that these were shenei chaye sarah. Shenei chaye sarah. What does shenei mean? We have translated shenei meaning the years of. But shenei also very simply means both of. Shnei luchos habris. Shenei chaye sarah means both parts of Sarah's life were always present. And that is the ultimate tribute to Sarah, that she didn't just, like as, as possible to do <coughs> for a lesser person, to become a one-sided person, to, be, uh, to become a, a one-element person, but rather are always keeping the two parts of life together. And I think it's interesting to, as a, as a follow-on for this fascinating explanation of the Ksava Kabbalah, to note the words of the Arachayim HaKadosh. Because Sarah's, the opening of our Parsha is all about the burial of Sarah. And where is she buried? She's buried in the city of Hebron. And the word Hebron comes from the word Chibur. What is so special about Hebron? Hebron is a place, it's, it's, it's where the Avos decided that's where, that's where they need to be. There's something about it. And, and what that special quality is, says the Rachaim HaKadosh, is that it's a meeting place. It's very accentuated there. Chibur, it's Hebron of, of this lower, the temporal realm and the higher realm. That's why people daven there. Because there's, a, there's an interface there. So there's this fusion of, the, of these two realms. So when a person goes there, they can partake of the Chibur, of the Hebron. And indeed, not only is the city, and the city was renamed, right, from Kiras Arba to Hebron, right, Kiras Arba to Hebron, not only is the city about this connection between these two planes, where specifically was she buried? In Ma'aras HaMachpelah, in the double cave, in the dual cave. Kaful means doubled over, it's double. Kefel, Kefel. And Rashi, and there's a machlokus in the Gemara in Erev, and Rashi cites, why is it called Ma'aras HaMachpelah? But first and foremost, Machpelah once again reflects the dual nature of the place, the dual capacity of the place. It's kaful. It exists in this world, but it also is very much connected, Hebron, to the higher realm. And who is the first person that the Torah tells us is buried there? Sarah. And what greater qualification... We have a Masorah that Adam and Chava are, are also there. As far as the Torah, what the Torah tells us explicitly is that it's, it's Sarah is the first one. And in a sense, as far as the Psukim are concerned, she inaugurates those who were buried there. But based on what? What is her merit? What are her qualifications? The answer is what the Ksava Kabbalah said. Shenei Chaye Sarah. Because she preserved the connection between these two realms. And that was her life's achievement. So she now is the first to be interred in Ma'aras HaMachpelah, which is a place where those two realms are connected. And I think with this in mind, perhaps we can explain an otherwise very puzzling statement of the Medrash. I know this is our fifth or sixth Medrash uh, so far this evening, but this one is from the Medrash Tanhuma, fascinating, because the Pasuk says that Avram came Lispod Lesara Vilivkosa, Lispod Lesara, to give a eulogy for Sarah. And the Pasuk doesn't tell us what the eulogy was, but the Medrash does. 
And the Medrash says that the Hesper that Avram gave to Sarah was the song of Eishes Chayel. Eishes Chayel Mayimsa, which will later be codified in Sefer Mishle, in Ksuvim, but historically was originally said by Avram as his Hesper for Sarah. And indeed, the Medrash goes on to explain certain psukim in this light. Uh, a standout, before we get to the one that, that we are, are headed towards, is Dalet. Darshat semer ufishtim. What is the meaning of Darshat semer ufishtim? The simple meaning is she seeks after, after wool and linen, these various materials. She's industrious and she's, she's uh, um, manufacturing clothing and etc. and so forth. As an Aisha's Chayel. But the Medrash says Darshat Semir Ufishtim refers to her appraisal of the relationship of Yitzchak and Yishmael. Darshat Semir Ufishtim, she said, get rid of Yishmael. What's it got to do with Darshat Semir Ufishtim? What's the wool and linen? Wool and linen are two things that cannot live together. They're shatness. They're by themselves. That's one thing. You put them together, it's asking for trouble. Darshat Semeru Fishtim. She looked at Yitzhak and Yishma, she said, that's Shatnas. One of them has to go. And that, again, is something that we are, uh, are constantly being <coughs> reminded of. But the Pasuk of Zion, Zamama Sadeva Tikachehu, Zamama Sadeva, she, 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 she planned regards to a field and she acquired it. Which field did Sarah acquire? We're not aware of Sarah acquiring any field. Says the Medrash, that's Sedeha Machpelah. So, so Avram is saying that Sarah, she is the one who initiated the acquisition of Ma'aras HaMachpelah. But where and how? The first we hear of it, it's Avram who approaches Ephron. That's, when the, that's the first we hear of Ma'aras HaMachpelah. But according to our expansion of the Ksava Kabbalah, perhaps we can understand. It's no simple matter to require Ma'ar Samach The physical acquisition, which is itself a protracted business in the beginning of the Parsha, was between Avram and Ephron after Sarah passed away. But the spiritual input which allowed that acquisition to take place was the, actually the life work of Sarah as being a machpelah person, as being a chevron person, shenei chaye Sarah. So everything that Sarah stood for and everything that Sarah achieved and all the things that she, le- she, she lived by, that gave Avram the spiritual ability to then proceed and acquire the field itself. But its acquisition at root is attributed to Sarah, which is, of course, a, a fascinating idea. Um, that would seem perhaps to be a suggestion as to the Medrash's explanation of Zamama Sadevatikahehu that it was Sarah that initiated the acquisition of Ma'ar Samachpela. And so, uh, as is so often the case, three seemingly innocuous words at the end, Shnei Chaye Sarah, but if we look at them, they open up Ramban in his way, Rebekah Kamenesk in his way, Ksava Kabbalah in his way, and uh, with that, we proceed to the center of the parsha, which is, of course, Eliezer's quest for a wife for Yitzhak. What's quite striking, again, easy not to notice, but for all the fact that Eliezer is, in a sense, the primary protagonist, really, in the parsha, he is described more than anyone else. 
<coughs> it's also noteworthy <coughs> that he is not mentioned by name even once. We've heard him mentioned by name in Parshas Lech Lecha, Damesek Besi, Damesek Eliezer, etc. But in Parshas Chayesar, in our Parsha, not once. Well, <coughs> what is he called? It actually shifts. At certain times he's called the Eved, which he is. He's Avram's Eved. At other times he's called the Ish, the person, which he also is. Specifically, we can, we can divide, generally, the Parsha, this is Perik Kaftalad, of course, the long Perik in the, in the middle of the Parsha, we can divide it into three. Because from Pasuk Beis to Pasuk Kaf, okay, from verse two, 2 to 20, he is called the Evet. The Evet did this, the Evet did that, he took the, his, his master's camels and he went to, then he went to the well, etc. From Pasuk Kaf Aleph to Nun Aleph, which really is uh, halfway through the test until finishing <coughs> retelling the story to Rivka's family, he's called the Ish. And then in Nun Beis, basically till the end of the Perak, he's called Eved again. So we can really identify quite discernible uh, areas <coughs> within the Parsha. First he's called an Evid for the first 20 Psukim, and then for the next 30 Psukim he's called Ish, and for the final 15 Psukim he's called Evid. What's it all about? What's behind the shift, and, and uh, how are we meant to approach this? So Rabbeinu Bachia, and following him, the Shaloh HaKadosh, they draw our attention back to Posuk Vav and Zion in Perik Kaftalet. So this is right at the beginning where Avram is adjuring uh, Eliezer to find a wife for, for, for Yitzchak. Pasuk Vav. I'm sorry, Pasuk <coughs> Hey is when, is when Vayomer Lav HaEved. Okay, it's early days, it's early Psukim. He's still he's called an Eved. What if she doesn't want to come back here? Should I bring Yitzchak back? And in Pasuk Vav, Avram says, under no circumstances. But in Pasuk Zion, he proceeds and says, Hashem Shamayim. Hashem, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my uh, birth, who swore to me this land, he will send an angel before you. He will send his angel before you, more correctly. And you'll take a wife for my son from there. So that's very interesting. Because I think... Um, if we would, and it's often very uh, informative for us to think how we would present the story in our own words, even knowing it. I think as we would tell the story, Eliezer said, should I, should I bring him back? And Avram says, no, don't bring him back. And that's basically the end of that. And we might even miss out Pasuk Zion where Avram says, Hashem will send an angel before you. And, the, and, and, and you'll succeed. Interestingly, it's a parenthetical comment, but we see again an eye on detail. Many Mepharshim raise the question, Rashi himself and Ramban again and others, that in Pasuk Zion, Avram says, Hashem Elokei Hashem, the God of heaven, will send, etc., etc. 
earlier on, just a few psukim earlier in Pasuk Gimel. Vashbiacha, I will make you swear, Bashem Elokei Shamaim Velokei Haaretz, Bashem, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for Yitzchak from Benos Haknaani. Why is it that in Pasuk Gimel, Hashem is referred to as Elokei Shamaim Velokei Haaretz, but in Pasuk Zion, just Elokei Hashemaim? It's a very interesting difference. And the Shalaz answer is this is disarmingly simple. Namely, in Pasuk Gimel, Avram is talking to Eliezer. <clears throat> They're here. They're on earth. And he's telling him that I make you swear by the God who's of the heavens and the God of the earth because we're on earth. So he exists in heaven, but his dominion extends to earth. And that means that you need to abide by the Shavua. In Pasuk Zion, what is the topic there? Hashem will send a Malach. Well, where is he going to send him from? From heaven. And that's why in that Pasuk, Hashem is called simply Elokei Hashemai. But what's <clears throat> most important for us to persist and ask is, you know, after all this proclamation, that Hashem will send you an angel, we don't see the angel. I mean, uh, from this point onwards, it's Eliezer, and he's got his test, and it's Rivka, and etc. But, I mean, where is, the, where is the much vaunted angel from Avram? And apparently, without the angel, it might not work. So, so where is he? Says Rabbi Nubachia, he's in the test. He's in the whole situation. There is no natural way that this test should, could have produced the desired result that Eliezer is asking for. And when you think about it, even, even for anyone to be forthcoming in that way, to be approached by a complete stranger and to be asked for, to, to give to drink and then to offer to give their camels to drink, it's just, it, it, it boggles the imagination. And what's more... How many girls is Eliezer actually meaningfully able to try this test on? What if the first one fails? Does he ask someone else? How many girls can he ask before he gets run out of town? And moreover, what if the first one, what if the first one gives him to drink but doesn't give his camels to drink? How much can he drink? He, he, he'll probably find it hard to walk to the, to the next girl and, what, and, 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 and drink another jug of water? So it's an impossible test, and it has to be the first person, and she's got to be the right person. Where is all that orchestration coming from? That's the Malach. The Malach doesn't appear uh, with a flaming sword and, di and direct uh, the girl towards uh, Eliezer. He's in the test. He's arranging that Rivka's the one that comes out exactly at that time. He's the one that, that uh, uh, Eliezer sees. So he's, he's, he's hiding in plain sight. But there's no other way to explain how, how things worked out the way they did. And at a certain point, Eliezer begins to see it. Eliezer is an Evet, which he is. And in a sense, that's, that's a title of distinction. To be an Evet of Avram, and that, that's his, he, he, he's proud of it. How does he begin? Evet Avraham Anochi, as, as any servant to a good cause should be proud of, be, of, of serving that cause. The word Evet, therefore, is an apt description. What about the word ish? Ish also means a person, but ish is also a term for an angel. 
Ha'ish Gavriel. Later on in Parshas Vayeshev, when Yosef meets someone on the way to his brothers, he's lost, they're lost, he's lost. Who is that Ish? Says Rashi, it's the Malach Gavriel. So when is, at a, at a certain point, Eliezer goes from being referred to as an Evid to being called an Ish. When is that point? When he himself begins to realize that the Ish is in play here. When he sees that his test has been answered in a way that, that is beyond any realistic expectation. So he's called the Ish when he, when he perceives the presence and the arrangement of the Ish. And when is that? Well, in Pasuk Kaf, uh, Pasuk Kaf Aleph. Because, because what has happened in Pasuk Kaf is that this girl, whoever she is, has, has done the unthinkable. She's done the impossible. She has not only given him to drink, but she also gives his, his camels to drink. And Eliezer at this point says, something is happening here. This was the first girl. She is answered in a way that's almost impossible. Veho ish mishto elo. The ish is now waiting to see how things to see how things turn out. But he already has Eliezer is no longer Eved now. He's gone into ish mode because he already perceives the 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 the, the work of Hashem's Malach here. And and the, the more things proceed, the more he sees it. What's very interesting is, and this is really a, a, a fascinating parshanut point. The Malach has been involved the whole time. But Eliezer is called Ish when he sees it, when he recognizes it, because that's when it becomes a title for him. He is called the Ish. He is called the Ish when he sees that, that the Ish is, is in play. And thus he continues. As, as things become more and more successful, and in, where does it uh, lead us to? Perik, uh, to, to, to Pasuk Nun Beis. So again, we start with Nun Aleph. He's just retold the story to, uh, to, Rif, to Rivka's family. And they respond again in a way that one wouldn't expect them to. They just basically say, in Pasuk Nun, we have to hear those words, This is, this is from God. And we don't even want to think about the last time they mentioned God's name in any context. And that's their, that's their reaction. There's nothing we can say. I mean, this is manifestly divine providence. She's the one with our blessing. As far as the Pasuk is concerned, at this point we would say, mission accomplished. And with everyone having acted the way they should, although they'll cause trouble the next day, they'll try and backtrack a little bit in classic uh, fashion. But Pasukunun Beis Vayi Kasher Shama Eved Avraham Estivrehem. When the servant of Avraham heard that, Vayishtachu Arza Lashem, he bows down. In other words, mission accomplished. The Ish has done what the Ish needs to do, and Eliezer is is knocked back again. Evid, and that he will remain more or less until the end of 
the Parsha. And what's very interesting is, says the Shalah, this will answer other aspects of the Parsha, well known in fact. What did Eliezer do first uh, when Rivka passes the test? Did he first, there were gifts to give, but he also has to find out who she is. Which did he do first? Did he first give her the gifts or did he first inquire as to who she is? Well, there seems to be something of a discrepancy in this regard. Because if we look in Pasuk Kaf Beis, so Pasuk Kaf Beis reads, When the animals finish drinking, so he takes he takes Nezem Zahav, Beka Mishkalo, Shnitzvidim, Ayodeha. He takes all these all these jewelry, the ring and the uh, the, the bracelets, etc. <coughs> That's Pasukah base. Ushnitzvidim Ayodeha. Sounds like he's already given her the jewelry. Then in Pasukah Gimel he says, "Who are you, Basmiat Hagidina?" Right. That's uh, so. First he gives the gifts, and then he asks who she is. However. In Posuk Mem Zayin, when he retells the story, he um, tweaks this detail a little bit. He says, Posuk Mem Zayin, Vo'esh al va'omar. I asked her, Basmiat, whose daughter are you? Vatomer basbasua ben Nachor, ah, the daughter of Basua, Asheyaldolo milka, and then va'asim hanezem al apa, vatzbinim ayodeh, and then I gave her the jewelry. So that seems to be a discrepancy of the order. Now, interestingly, it's not necessarily a contradiction. And the reason why, and this the Ramban says, <coughs> because in Pasuk Kavbeis, it doesn't explicitly say that he gave her the jewelry. It just says that he took the jewelry, which sounds in a sense like he's about to give it to her, but he doesn't yet. The Pasuk says, again, to see the Pasuk, so we see exactly what Ramban is saying. When the, when the uh, camels finished drinking, pardon me, he took the golden ring, now, says Ramban, means two bracelets to place on her hand. It doesn't mean that he gave them to her yet. So he's readying them. And then he asks who she is. So that's not a contradiction between what he says later on, that he asked and then he put the jewellery on her. But still there's room to ask, why does initially it focus more on readying the jewellery and then only subsequently tell us practically how it worked out? Says the Shalah, the reason is because, and this is a, a fascinating further element within the situation. Eliezer is called the Ish when he perceives the Ish, but that him perceives the workings of the Ish, of this, of this angel. But that itself, in a sense, elevates Eliezer's own sense of the providence and the success of this mission. <clears throat> in a sense, one could say he is, he is angel-inspired as, as, as long as he perceives the, the workings of the angel. And in keeping with that, he is, in a sense, readying in anticipation of her answering correctly. He's not going to give it to her yet. But the, but the Pasuk emphasizes that he's already taking the jewelry out because he's on a path to success. And that's why, as an Ish, as an Ish-inspired personality, 
The focus is on readying them even before he asks. Of course, subsequent to that, when he tells the story, he tells it to her family in a more practical way. They're not necessarily interested in his inspiration and angelic uh, visions and, and so on and so forth. They just want to know that it all worked out. And, um, and that's why he emphasizes more that he asked for it and gave the, then gave the jewelry. And moreover, says the Shalah, this may also explain another very interesting comment of Rashi. The Pasuk specifies the weight of the, of the jewelry which is very interesting. I don't think we would have asked if the Pasuk hadn't said. He took a ring and two bracelets. And if the Pasuk didn't say how much they, they, they weighed, I don't know that we would have felt that's a information missing. Because however much they weighed, that's how much they weighed. But it does say how much they weighed. And that's why Rashi comments, there are illusions here. There are illusions here. The, the ring is Beka Mishkalo. It's the, the weight is beka, half a shekel. But we know that beka is the machzis a shekel. Beka logugoles. It's a remez. It's a remez for her descendants. And what about the two, the two bracelets? Tzmidim, tzamud, are the, t- the, two, the two luchos. A remez to the two luchos. Asara zahav. That's why they weigh ten. Aseras hadibros. Rashi says all of this. So it's very interesting that, in a sense, without our discussion, we might be inclined to say that, well, Eliezer is... Does Eliezer, Eliezer have all of this in mind? Eliezer himself is very interesting. He's referred to by the Gemara as a Rosh Hashiva. Zokin v'yoshev v'yeshiva. He's dole umashket, damesek Eliezer. He, 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 he spreads his, his master's teachings. So he himself is certainly knowledgeable uh, in Torah. But perhaps we never realize that he knows all about all of this. And he knows there's Matis HaShekel, and he knows there's Aseris HaDibros, and I mean, it, it, he really is, it's very, very symbolic with a great deal of prescience and, for, and foresight and foreknowledge. And maybe. But the Shalal Kodesh says no. I mean, Eliezer is a Rosh Hashiva, but if you want to know where these, these allusions come from, this is Eliezer when he's under the He's under the, the inspiration of the Malach. So, so he actually is doing things in a very elevated and inspired way. So Malach inspired, when he gives him these gifts, there's something, there's a meaning behind everything. That's really, when you've got a Malach in you, so then the jewelry takes on a different, a different dimension. That's what the Shalah says. And what is the final, uh, in a sense, the, the, the concluding Pasuk, really is Pasuk Samach Aleph, where we see the whole thing come to an end. Pasuk Samach Aleph. <clears throat> and that's where everyone, in a sense, says goodbye. Pasuk Samach Aleph, Rivka follows, Vatokam Rivka v'narosea, Vatirkavna alagmalim. Okay, so Rivka and her, and her girls, so they ride on the camels. Vatelachna achare ha'ish. Vayikach ha'eved es Rivka vayelach. This is the one posuk where Eliezer is referred to both as an ish and as an eved. Why? Because this is where all of the, the, the protagonists in the situation are heading back. So on the one hand, the ish heads back, and when he heads back, he heads back heavenwards, leaving Eliezer, the Eved, to take Rivka back to Yitzchak.
So this is uh, the fascinating Parshanut. Again, it's rooted in Rabbeinu Bachia, but developed uh, greatly by the Shaloha Kodosh. Uh, and, and as always, it comes from, from paying attention, from being uh, attentive to the, the ways that the Pasuk refers to Eliezer, never as Eliezer, sometimes as Eved, sometimes as Ish, and, and the whole Parsha opens out. I'd like to conclude <clears throat> by referring us back to the beginning of the Parsha. And as we're told, Sarah lives 127 years. And there is a famous medrash here. Bracious rabbi. Rabbi Akiva was once darshaning. He was once expounding. And the oilam was dozing. This medrash alone is a source of great comfort for many a rabbi. They should know they are not the first. But Rabbi Akiva, uh, he's darshaning, they're, they're, they're in this like dozing state. So he's looking to wake them up. So what did he do? He shifted topic. What the, the medrash doesn't say what his topic was. But he shifted it and, and threw out the following question. Omar, Vosepus, that Esther, she became queen over 127 states. You know where it came from? It came from Sarah. Ella, Tavo Esther, Shehibasbito Sarah, let Esther come, who is a descendant of Sarah Shechaisa. Kuf v'kaf v'zayin, who lived 127 years, v'timloch al kuf v'kaf v'zayin medinos. And then everyone woke up. And the question is, what is the message here? Why are they dozing? And what really is the, the idea that Esther's reign over 127 states is in any way connected to the 127 years of Sarah. Esther's time, as her name suggests, as the Gemara itself says, was a time of Hesterpani. It was a time of divine concealment. It's a time where it's difficult to know from where the Jewish people will get the resources to pull out of it. I mean, they're deep in exile. They're deep in sorrows. And, and in the middle of all of that, Esther rises and she becomes the queen. I mean, she'd become the queen already, but she's positioned as queen. Over, she's, she is in the right position to do something when the time comes, against all odds, contrary to all expectations. Where did that come from? It comes... From her, from her grandmother. It comes from Esther. Pardon me, from Sarah. In other words, the message is Jewish experience does not begin four weeks before they enter into any particular situation. It begins thousands of years earlier. And, and that means that if they find themselves in a dark situation, in a difficult time, they're not alone. They have merits and they have spiritual resources that have been in preparation for thousands of years. 
and they stand by them and encourage them to generate merits of their own. The Jewish people did not start yesterday. They didn't start the day before Tsaras. If they started the day before Tsaras began, they'd end the day after Tsaras began. But they didn't. The story of Purim doesn't start with Esther. It starts with Sarah. And, the, and, the, and then Esther and the Jewish people are buoyed by that. They're supported by it. They're helped by it. And they're encouraged by it. In such a situation was Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is back again in a, in a dark time. Besamekdash has been destroyed. Persecution against the teaching of Torah intensified after the destruction of the second Besamekdash. It did not wane or abate. It intensified. And people, they're attending a shear, but they're not sure what's going to be. Golas is called sleep. Golas is called sleep. And the Tzibor, they're, they're heading into Golas and they're dozing away. They're, they're losing a sense of, are we, still, are we still in it? Are we still a going concern? So how does Rabbi Akiva wake them up? How does he reassure them <coughs> and confirm for them that they are very much a going concern and everything they do yet makes a difference? He says, remember Esther and Sarah. Es the story of Esther didn't start with Esther. And our story, says Rabbi Kiva, didn't start with us. The history of the Jewish people did not begin with the destruction of the second base Hamikdash. And, and that means that we also have resources, Rabbi Akiva, and they'll see us through this. But more than see us through this, they will also encourage us to generate our own merits and our own resources because, because the Jewish people are a going concern and they're an ongoing concern. And even during dark times, what keeps them going is where they came from, which was before this, this, this difficult period, and where they're headed, which is, which is to, to, to move out of it, to rise up from it. And, and with us, the tzibur, the, tzibur, the tzibur woke up. And I think it's a very timely message for us in the sense that uh, something that, that, that could lead another people to, to, who knows what, to the brink of despair. But the Jewish people, they, they began before this and they will continue after this. After other forces have ended or are ended, the Jewish people will continue. I came across a statement, a comment. Uh, it quotes a, a sefer called Yalkut Yehud. I'm not familiar with the sefer. But it really sums up all of this in Pasuk Gimel. What does it say? Vayakam Avraham me'alpene meso. Avraham got up. He got up from, from, uh, from, from before his deceased. And he proceeds to, to arrange for the kavura. And, and so on and so forth. What does that mean? Vayakam Avraham. He rose up. Because for Avraham, personally, uh, from a certain point of view, suffered this terrible blow. And it's, it's enough to disable a person. It's enough to paralyze a person. And here he is. And, and, and the Torah does not say that Avraham was not impacted by it. The first pasuk says he absolutely uh, engages and connects with the loss of Sarah. Lisbod la Sarah, velivkosa. 
but his his career as Avram doesn't end with this boat to serve the Livkosa. Vayakam Avraham. The mace is in front of him, but he, he rises up because he has the future of the Jewish people to take care of and to uh, and to be active in. I think if there's one way to to uh, describe the <clears throat> the last few weeks, it's it's Vayakam Avraham at the Jewish people. They, they they have their their mace in front of them. But they, but but how how they've risen up and 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 come together and the 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 awakening that's happened and and there's been lispod lasaravilivkosa there there can't not be but it doesn't end there from there the Jewish people say that that that, that we we are committed to the future of the Jewish people and so by Yakam Avrami so and in that our role model is Avram Avinu, the very first ever Jew, the progenitor of the Jewish people, and we take his cue by Yochum so, and we rise, and we should continue to rise, and Mitz uh, Hashem, not only draw on the merits from those who came before us, but to generate our own merits, and, and merits of almost uh, incalculable proportions are being generated. In, in these weeks, people that, that were doing are doing more. People that weren't doing have, have, have begun to do, and there's, there's this... It, the, the people are rising up. That's Vayakam Avram. So we should continue to do so. And Hashem should be Molichenu Komomius Learzenu. Fully tall, standing Learzenu and Komomius Learzenu. And we should have Besurus Tovus Pekarov Yeshua Svenachovus until the Geula Shalema Bimeherab Yamin Amin.